You're listening to Louisiana Insider, a superlative guide to a great state's destinations. Hosted by Errol Laborde, executive editor of Louisiana Life Magazine. It's not Louisiana song. It's my favorite melody. It's not Louisiana song. Hearing it echo through the cypress trees. We have a topic today, which I guess is maybe as, as serious as there come. Uh, uh, I guess there are a few topics that are um, less important than education is. And uh, with me is uh, uh, Jay Celeste Lay, who's a professor at, at Tulane University. And she's uh, just published a book called Public Schools, Private Governance, um, Education Reform and Democracy in New Orleans. Uh, big focus is on charter schools, which is, uh, I think, surprising when you see this book because the image of charter schools, I think, in the community in general is positive. It's a good thing to have lots of charter schools, uh, which is not the way that this book goes, and, and it, uh, it raises some legitimate questions, which I think have to be, have to be part of the discussion, and so it's, a, it's an important book in that sense. Uh, Celeste, thank you very much for, uh, for joining us. You start your book in the, uh, with the introduction by, by telling the story of uh, McDonough High School, the original McDonough High School that opened in 1912. Would you mind tell us what the school was like then, what the objectives and what happened after that? Sure, well, thank you for having me first. Sure. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I mentioned in my book that, about John McDonough and the transformation of that school, you know, initially, <clears throat> which, you know, served as uh, an all-girls school um, and then <clears throat> changed over the years and, and, you know, gave us the author of Confederacy of Dunces and, and many other, um, you know, notable New Orleanians um, and Louisianans. So uh, it, it was a public all-girls school. Uh, yes, and then, um, you know, with the, um, the transformation of the schools in the middle of the 20th century, largely due to integration, um, the school transformed in the 60s and 70s um, as uh, white families in New Orleans went to private schools, they moved out of the city into um, Jefferson Parish or over in the North Shore, and the school became a predominantly Black school, um, like a lot of other public schools in New Orleans during that time. Um, and that, you know, by the late 90s and the early 2000s um, was um, <clears throat> not a, you know, was perceived anyway as not a, not a high quality school in terms of the uh, test scores and those sorts of indicators, um, and also was the site of a very violent uh, shooting um, in the early 2000s. And um, so then it went through the Katrina transformation um, where it struggled for a number of years um, after Katrina um, to first, first it was a directly run school um, after Katrina by the RSD the recovery school district and then okay, okay, let's explain that because that's an important part of the story yeah. uh, the rsd was a and correct me if i'm wrong was an entity created by the state at the time of katrina to just oversee the recovery of public schools is that correct no actually it was created before katrina 
Um, the RSD was created by the state. Um, the state legislature passed this, this law in 2003. So it was in place uh, two years before Katrina. Um, and then of course it became the, um, the governing body for the vast majority of schools after Katrina, including John McDonough. Um, and eventually was closed um, and renovated. Um, it's, the, the building is still there. It's now um, a, a beautiful facility, uh, but it is the home of bricolage, which is primarily an elementary and middle school um, that is um, the, the, I don't know about the motto, but the, the, the design, the model of the school is around diversity by design and uh, serves a very different population than the old John McDonough High School, for sure. And John McDonough, who was once a, uh, regarded as a, a beloved and benevolent figure in New Orleans and had his name or his name was on many schools, his name's no longer there anymore. Uh, just as part of the modern movement that uh, was association with, with, with slavery and his family. Right. Yeah, there's a lot of McDonough schools in New Orleans. Um, you know, he left a great deal of money um, to the city for the education, primarily of, of white children in New Orleans. Um, and there uh, was a statue of him until fairly recently um, in the Central Business District. Um, and from what I understand, children at McDonough schools used to, on, on Founders Day, used to go, you know, have to go to the statue and, and leave flowers at the, the site of, of John McDonough's statue. And, um, but yes, a very complicated in terms of his uh, beliefs about Black students, Black children, um, for sure. Now, now, prior to 1960s and those court rulings, most of the public school system, most of the public schools were, were all white. But there were some that were that were designated as being um, uh, schools for black students. Right. Well, the school system was segregated, like a lot of school systems across the the South. Um, you know, in the in the years up to really 1970, you know, in the 1960s, things began to change. But um, this you know, there was a black school system and a white school system, um, and they were. They were separate in terms of their enrollment. They were separate in terms of the the personnel, the teachers, the facilities, the funding, etc. Um, so, you know, there was there were there were white schools and black schools. But were they both governed by the same Orleans Parish School Board? Um, I believe so, uh, but certainly, and they were not equal in terms of funding and opportunities. So they had like uh, a subdivision within the school board. Yeah. 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 Uh, even transportation was very unequal um, in most of these systems. Okay, so in 1960, this was at a time with the uh, uh, with civil rights, civil rights bill was passed in 64. This is a, a time of great social change in the United States. And I guess it was social change heading in the right direction, but boy, there were a lot of repercussions in, uh, in implementing it. And so 1960s, the schools were ordered to be integrated. So what happened at McDonough? Uh, so, you know, like a lot of schools at the time, um, you know, it was, it was a predominantly white school, um, if not exclusively white school. Um, and then as, um, as immigration, I mean, immigration, integration orders 
uh, were actually enforced by the courts. Uh, because for a number of years after the Supreme Court's decision in 1954, you know, Louisiana and New Orleans really um, tried to avoid integration as much as possible, actively avoid it. Um, and so it, it really did take many years before schools, before those in integration orders were officially um, enforced. And then as that happened, um, schools changed their, you know, demographics shifted as uh, white families um, left. And eventually by the 1980s and 90s, many middle-class black families also left public schools, particularly for the Catholic school system um, in the city. Right. Um, like the creation of, um, of St. Augs, uh, St. Augustine's high school would have been around that time. And wasn't that more of um, more middle-class black families? Yeah, I'm, I'm not an expert on the, the whole uh, history of all the different schools in New Orleans. So okay. <laughs> um, I don't want to say that the same thing. Because <laughs> someone, someone will know that and will correct me. Yeah. So. <laughs> there were two schools that were like um, De La Salle, which is um, mm -hmm. in St. Augustine. If you pass by, the buildings look almost exactly the same. Mm -hmm. And they were created at the same time. I think one was with the intention of, okay, you know, this would be the majority white school, this would be the majority. Uh, black school, and in their own way, I mean, they've both been successful at, uh, uh, at that. But the, um, uh, especially, uh, especially um, Saint Augs. So as it happened, then once you had integration, this was around the country. I mean, there were all kind of stories about schools being integrated. There was the, what the famous thing at Central High in Little Rock, where they had to um, bring in the state troopers to uh, uh, to reinforce it. Um, white families left the public school system. And in some cases they left, they left the county or they left Orleans Parish as was also happening, right? It was really the birth of the suburbs uh, at that time. Uh, that and I guess the construction of the interstate. And so right. it really started to transform. Um, so how did a, a school like McDonough, how did it do in this transformation? Well, you know, I think it, it um, the transformation at McDonough uh, was representative of the transformation of the school system more generally. As, um, as the demographics shifted and public schools in New Orleans became predominantly, or in many cases exclusively, Black, um, the, the city began to disinvest from public schools. And so facilities really um, deteriorated um, it became, you know, more difficult to be able to, you know, for, for schools like John McDonough to update their, you know, their textbooks and libraries and all the kinds of things that schools need to be successful in terms of educating their students. And so, um, you know, the, this the school really was a product of the system that, that was created largely through this, um, these decisions on the parts of primarily white families to leave the public school system in New Orleans. With me is uh, Professor Jay Celeste Lay of Tulane University. He has a new book out called Public Schools, Private Governance, um, Education Reform and Democracy in New Orleans. It's a good study of education and education politics and, and social in, uh, interactions. Let me talk a little bit about the concept of the, of the charter school. I remember like being in a town in rural Louisiana 
And like one of my cousins uh, pointing to a school and he said, you see that at the charter school? And I said, well, what's that, what's the charter school? And he says, well, this is the school that was a public school and uh, it's been taken over. It has a private charter from the state to operate as an entity in itself. And the governance really comes from the parents or parents committees. And uh, this particular cousin was, was very happy. I mean, at the, at the time it seemed like uh, a good idea. Okay, <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, of putting more governance right within the community. And then that was the first time I heard of one. And of course, gradually over the years, it became um, a growing movement. So where did, the, where did the charter school concept come from? That's a good question. Um, you know, charter schools originated in Minnesota and in the early 90s. <clears throat> and they originated out of um, ideas largely from teachers and other school administrators in public systems. Um, that uh, the idea that that there are special needs for certain students, that the average or typical public school um, sometimes can't really um, can't really meet those special needs, and so the idea was to have a public system rather than you know to say well you know if the public school doesn't serve you then your only option is to go to a private school to have a public system or a public school, not, it's not a system in most places. Outside of New Orleans, it's not, you know, it, it looks very different outside of New Orleans, um, most uh, charter schools. Uh, and, and so that's sort of where it was birthed. So this idea of, that you're talking about, that it is sort of from the community and it's teachers and parents and other community members that um, create a school that serves uh, students that may not be well served by a traditional public school. Now that changed significantly over time. Um, and that was the early 90s. And, you know, many charter schools um, are, you know, that was the original idea, but, but lots of charter schools today uh, don't intend to serve a different population. You know, it, it, it looks very different and it looks much more different in New Orleans than it does anywhere else. Um, in most places outside of New Orleans, charter schools sit alongside the traditional public school system. And so there continues to be in most places with charter schools, a neighborhood-based public school system that most people are familiar with in the United States, uh, where you know if you live here, you go to school in this neighborhood school. Um, and, and the charter system sort of sits alongside that as an alternative to or another option for, uh, for families. Um, in New Orleans, all of our public schools are charter schools. Which is so, very unusual. Isn't, wasn't New Orleans what the first yeah. in the nation to, uh, for its public school? Yeah, and, and the only right now. So we, we are unique. <laughs> yeah. Well, I remember, I know a lot of this education kind of pivots around Katrina. But before Katrina, the the idea of charter schools was um, it was it was a growing idea, and frequently the school board would be there'd be various proposals and resolutions to change various schools uh, under the public school system into charter schools, which means the school board would be giving up some of its autonomy to this new charter group, and it was routinely rejected. I mean, it was an automatic every Monday night uh, when the school board met, you'd have your charter school rejection vote, all right. But then after Katrina, I mean, it was like a stampede. 
uh, to allow. And so Katrina really changed that. So what changed? Was it the school board feeling like it no longer had the capacity to govern and that maybe it was better in the neighborhoods or what changed? Well, um, I, that's one of the main arguments of the book is that there is a, a strong narrative that so much of our current school system in New Orleans, that the, that the change goes back to Katrina and that it was sort of born out of this devastation uh, from Katrina that, you know, all of our schools were closed for a number of weeks and many for several months or even years. And so um, that we needed charter schools um, as sort of a, a an, an emergency, so to speak, that that's what, you know, that's, that's the origin story for many people. But what I argue in my book is that the infrastructure for all of that change that came as a result of Katrina really started at least a decade before um, with many of these actions in the state legislature. And so over the course of a decade prior to Katrina, the state legislature passed a series of, of laws that really significantly eroded the power of um, traditional public schools, specifically in New Orleans. So, you know, one of these was to allow charter schools. That's a state uh, decision. And so, you know, that was made in the mid 90s um, to allow charter schools in the state. Um, but then gradually over time, the standardized testing system was put in place, the school grading system, school performance scores, all of those things, the sort of punishments for schools that don't meet particular standards. Um, you know, changes in uh, teacher certification, uh, all of these sorts of things were all part of this sort of incremental change. And then in 2003, the state created the Recovery School District, which was a takeover district for, it, it was intended for the state to take over failing schools or school districts. Um, and then in 2004, the state really stripped most of the power from the locally elected board and gave that to the, the superintendent. And so the, the locally elected board really could just rubber stamp. By locally elected board, you mean the charter schools? No, I mean the, the at the time, the OPSB, the Orleans okay. yeah, Parish School Board. Yeah, okay. yeah. Um, they changed their name since then, <laughs> the NOLA PS now, but... Um, yeah, and so there was this sort of gradual change over the course of a decade that really made it possible after Katrina for the state to come in, which they did in a, in a special session after Katrina, and passed a law that, um, that changed the grading system for New Orleans schools. So we had this A through F grading system for schools, um, and it, it changed and created defined a failing school as a school that was at the state average or lower. Um, so it was no longer the same definition of what a failing school was, which then allowed the state recovery school district to take control of nearly all of the public schools in New Orleans. And so that's sort of where the, 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 the major change, but that wouldn't have been possible without the decade of um, sort of incremental change uh, prior to that. I remember there was a time like, uh, I mentioned Monday nights, the Monday night school boards. I remember because the news media routinely hit a camera crew at school board meetings on Monday nights. And those were vile demonstrations. I mean, those are really, and I think for the news media's perspective, it was cheap entertainment 
but there was like just a lot of people screaming back and forth with each other. And a lot of them were with board members. And there was very little about this, what people saw that inspired them to think, well, these are the people whose hands our kids' education is in. I mean, it was really a, a sore, I mean, there were there some good people. I mean, there were some people with the, with, with the noblest of intentions, but there were some misdirected people in, in there too. And so it presented a, a bad impression, but I guess that's what well, that happens in politics. So it's probably better without television, but anyway. But I, I think the people were in the mood, if this is what they saw from the school board, I think the people were in the mood for something, for something different. Um, because how have, how has it worked, all right, with all the schools being on the charter? Can you look at it and say education is better in, in New Orleans today? Well, I think that's a, I think that's sort of the million dollar question, right? <laughs> um, and I think it all depends on what your, um, what you mean by better, right? So if you are looking at strictly test scores, or if you're looking at um, graduation rates, these sorts of things, or um, if you're looking at how the system runs and who's included in the system. Uh, so I think there's a lot of controversy around the educational outcomes. And I don't really get into that very much in, in my book because I'm not, you know, I'm a political scientist. So <laughs> my, my expertise, my interest is around governance and democracy and, and who's, you know, who's able to participate, whose voice really matters in the system. Um, but, you know, there's, there's some evidence that test scores are, are higher. Um, you know, there, there's, like I said, there's controversy around that. Um, I think, though, if you talk to parents of students in the system, uh, particularly Black parents, uh, there is a lot of frustration. Um, there's a lot of frustration about um, the process of selection for schools. Uh, that it's still the case that uh, white families in that are in the public school system, number one, that white that, that white families are not in the system. Uh, they continue to not be in the system at this at their levels in terms of the proportions of white children we have in the city. Um, but more than that, that the white students that are in the system are primarily in the selective enrollment schools. They're in the schools you have to test into. They're in, you know, the, and, and the, there's, you know, many black families see that as, you know, sort of perpetuating the same kind of inequality that we had prior to Katrina. Um, they're also very frustrated about um, the lack of neighborhood schools and sort of having to send kids across town to schools that they don't perceive as that much better than the old system and that their kids don't have much better opportunities than they than they used to. Now that's not true of every single family. Like there, there are children who are better off now than they would have been in the old system. That's without a doubt. Um, but on average, um, what I have found and what I show in my book is that there is a great deal of frustration about um, the lack of neighborhood schools, the lack of community engagement and involvement, um, the sense that these charter boards that are private, that are selected, um, they're not elected, so there's no way for the community to, you know, to really change the dynamic of that board. 
and that their voices, particularly black families' voices, are not really welcome in a lot of these, in a, for a lot of these boards and a lot of these schools. And that there aren't a lot of options for them to find a different kind of school that is welcoming, where they feel like their voice does matter. And so though there's, you know, there's sort of ostensibly school choice, um, they're choosing from a lot of the same kinds of options that where they continue to feel very excluded and disrespected. So would they prefer going back to the old type of elected school board? Um, I think there is a lot of support for more in for more legitimate engagement. So one of the things I talk about in the book is that, you know, that oftentimes the board, the elected board, or, um, you know, when, when they, there was reunification of when the RSD was kind of going away here and, and um, those, that was coming back together a couple of years ago, um, where there'll be sort of listening sessions where public officials will listen to people who have questions or comments, but <clears throat> the people who are making those those comments and 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 asking those questions don't have any real um, authority. They can't vote anybody out. They can't, you know, they, they um, there's just the the engagement is seen as kind of superficial, and uh, and that they, it's not welcomed. And so I think there is some support for. Um, if not, you know, a complete, you know, an, an elected board that's governing the way that it used to, then certainly a place where people's people feel like their engagement, their participation, their voice makes a difference, and that that is not the system that we have now in New Orleans. No, this is part of a a national argument, and I don't know the answer though. I'll ask you, so maybe you can tell us the answer. This whole issue of the um, ability of parents to make educational decisions, and we see this in statewide, we've seen it influencing elections around, um, around the country. But if you look at the day-to-day -day kind of decisions, the curriculum decisions and, um, that need to be made, are parents as a rule in the best position to make those kind of decisions? Or should it be passed on to hopefully professionally educated educators or uh, right. how does that work? Yeah, I mean, I think it, I think it depends on the, on the, the, the decision, right? If it's curriculum, if it's, you know, personnel, certainly, I mean, <clears throat> I think we have a variety of, of people with expert, with the expertise, right? Who have been to school, who have learned to teach, who know, you know, how to, how to do this. And I think everybody is willing to, um, well, not about everybody, but many people, the families that I spoke with, you know, respect that expertise. So I don't think it's that um, I didn't hear in, in my study people saying they want to be able to choose their, you know, choose the teachers or choose the textbooks or that sort of thing that most parents understand they don't have the, the time or the expertise to engage at that sort of fine grain day to day kind of level. Um, but the people that serve on the charter school boards also don't have a lot of that day-to-day -day expertise. Um, one of the things that I show is that the, uh, the, the sort of breakdown of, or the profile of those charter school board uh, members 
And most of them come out of business, law, um, uh, accounting, and they, they're very few that have classroom experience or school administrative experience. But they are the ones that are hiring school principals, um, hiring, you know, that are that are sort of setting the policy. And, uh, and, and so I think some sort of balance around kind of who has the expertise for that area, whether it's curriculum or discipline or facilities or whatever it might be, um, but also a sense that where if, if a parent has an issue, they're not going to be ignored completely. They're not going to be completely turned away if they want to talk to somebody about, about whatever it might be. Um, and I think that's, that's the feeling that I got in talking to a lot of, of parents is that they don't feel like the door is open for them to be able to express anything other than just an opinion to one another, that the system is just closed to them um, in terms of being able to affect any sort of change or to have any influence on any of those kinds of things. So if we can make you czar of education, what will we do? What should we do? Uh, yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's tough. I don't have a desire to be the czar of education. But, um, you know, and as, as, a, as political scientists, we're much better at pointing out problems than figuring out solutions to them. Um, but, you know, I think from a democratic standpoint, um, you know, I think we are stronger when we include more voices. When we go back to the, the founding of the United States, um, you know, James Madison addressed this very early on by saying, you know, the one of the main, one of the best ways to deal with conflict is to have more people engaged. Um, and the system of governance that we have over our public schools in New Orleans right now is the opposite of that and tries to exclude people and success and succeeds is succeeding in excluding voices and keeping people out rather than including them. And so, you know, when you include more people, you're going to get like wackadoodles, right? You're going to get people that that are at the extremes on on either side. Um, but the more of those, you know, the more people you include, the more will that you'll be able to see who those people are, and that, and the, you know, they will, um, they'll be able to say their piece, and then the majority, the the sort of um, the kind of sane majority of people will, you know, I think we have to trust our citizens to do the right thing in a democracy. Um, and so that's sort of where I would come at is, and I, and I make a few small tweaks of policy recommendations for the end of the book that are all designed to try to get more of, of more New Orleanians, particularly more families and more neighborhood residents involved in um, some important decision-making for our schools. There've always been at various times some educational activists, almost entirely the ones I can think of were, were women. And they'd been active in various organizations, uh, uh, the Council of Jewish Women, or the, uh, all those various organizations out there, um, League of Women Voters. And they were very smart, they were very good, they were well-intentioned. They never achieved real power though, okay? I mean, I can think of some that ran for school board and just didn't make it, you know. Mm -hmm. um, 
and the person who made it was somebody who had the backing of a contractor or something. But God bless those people because they really fought a lot of tough battles and went home and disappointed a lot, uh, as I think happens. And, uh, and to, be in, to be involved in school board governance, you must go home mad a lot too and just disappointed. So it takes a special, a special person to do that. So uh, anyway, uh, I hope your book provides some some enlightenment for him. Okay, so it's called Public Schools and Private Governance. It's published by Temple University. Mm -hmm. And uh, I assume it's um, is it available like on the, the websites, the usual places? Uh, it should be available anywhere books are sold. <laughs> okay. if, uh, if our local bookstores don't have it, um, I'm sure they can get it. And I know Temple University Press uh, website has it and and I did see it on you know that that one site that sells lots of books that I won't I won't say <laughs> okay. all right so anyway so it's called public schools private governance education reform and democracy uh, in New Orleans but beyond New Orleans is a good case study just about talking about the history of what's happened with a uh, uh, with education the author uh, you go by J J period uh, Celeste Leg. And she's yeah. an associate professor of political science at Tulane. What's next? What's your next book? Oh, that's a great question. You know, you mentioned uh, gender just a second ago, and I'm really interested in the role of gender and, and schools. Um, I think that the, the gender dynamics um, are really important in our attitudes about teachers, because the vast majority of our public school teachers are women. Um, I think it, I think parents, the vast majority of parents that are involved in schools, whether it's active as volunteers in schools or on the PTA or even just sort of assisting their kids, right? <laughs> but most of those are moms. Um, you know, they're much more involved than dads are typically. Um, you know, I'll get angry letters from dads. I know there are lots of very involved dads out there. <laughs> Um, that's, I think one of my next projects is around looking at some of these gender dy dynamics um, when it comes to school choice and when it comes to um, how those gender dynamics affect how we as citizens think about our schools and the quality of the schools. And remember, as I said, remember women as activists, being like the key activists on yeah. this. Okay. Thank you very much. This looks like an important contribution. Thank you very much. I appreciate uh, talking to you today. Okay, that was Celeste Delay of Tulane University. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Louisiana Insider. Subscribe, like, and rate our show where you listen to your podcasts and follow us on social media at Louisiana Life Mag. Executive producer for Louisiana Insider is Kelly Massico in cooperation with Louisiana Life Magazine. For subscription information to Louisiana Life, call 504 828-1380. Our theme music was provided by Rich Collins. Hey, that's me. Join us again next week for more discoveries inside Louisiana.